All right, we're going to wrap up Nehemiah, and uh, we're going to spend a few minutes uh, finishing up where we uh, left off uh, last week. And so, yeah, look at that servanthood, right? Servant leadership. So, I, I'm going to. I just want to start by sharing a couple details of what's gone on in my life for the last week. And I always hesitate to do that because, listen, everybody's going through stuff. So mine isn't any different. But I know this connects to what we're going to talk about, right? The the premise of everything that we started with last week was this. I asked this question when I wanted to wrap up Nehemiah, and that's this. Why did Nehemiah go to Jerusalem? 140 years between when Nehemiah broke down and cried and when the incident of the walls coming down happened. 140 years. Listen, not many of us are interested in fixing a problem that's 140 years old. Would you agree with that? Right? Yes or no? Right? And yet somehow, Nehemiah was motivated to step into an incredibly difficult position, which was letting his guard down in a way that could have cost him his life before the king of which he served as his cupbearer, meaning that everything that the king ate and drank, Nehemiah ate and drank first to make sure that he wouldn't die. There wasn't treason, right? His role was incredibly precarious and built solely upon the king's ability to trust him. And when Nehemiah let his guard down to show his weakness, it put him in position to not be trusted anymore, which meant he could have easily been killed. For some reason, he goes and does all of this. Why? For me, I believe he went for one reason and one reason alone. And he says it in Nehemiah 1. He went because of what he said in his prayer, and that's this. God told, God told Nehemiah, through what he said to Moses, even if my people are scattered to the furthest horizons, I'll bring them back. And not only will I bring them back, I'll bring them back to the place that I dwell. And on the trip back to Jerusalem, led by Ezra, after Jerusalem was ransacked and destroyed and deported somewhere else as refugees, Ezra came back and rebuilt the temple. It was a sad replication of the one that Solomon had built. And yet it was a temple nonetheless where God chose to dwell. I believe that Nehemiah's belief in that promise motivated him to go. And my premise is this. If you believe in a promise, the way you act determines whether that's true or not. Right? It's just true. Thank you. Yes. Right? Right? Yes. If somebody says to you, I'll do this, and I promise I'll do this, it doesn't take long for anybody to know whether or not you believe that promise or not. Right? There are just evidences of that. So my wife has a, has a friend uh, that's been her lifelong best friend since they were nine years old. And listen, I'm going to tell you this. You can pray for these people for sure. Um, I, you don't have to console me. Not that I don't appreciate it. 
You've got your things. I've got mine. We trust in the same God to provide the comfort. Okay. This is just what's going on. She's been battling pancreatic cancer since last August. She finally surrendered to the, to the battle and was admitted into hospice this past weekend. And her, her time to find Jesus in this journey has been fruitful. And she has accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And she is a brand new believer. You can clap for that. She is 53 years old. And she is seven years married. And she's going to lose her life. And she asked my wife in tears on Sunday morning as they laid in bed. Do you really believe there's a heaven? Fast forward to the next day. My dearest friend from back home in Illinois, who I worked with for lots of years, lives in Texas. His son, oldest son, who is 30-some, his life was a mess. He'd moved down to Texas to be close to his dad, and he had turned his life around and had begun to, to try to find a relationship with the Lord, was going to church, had a wife, had a two-year-old son. His wife was pregnant with their second child, and she was a parent to children from a previous marriage. They were headed home from Lubbock, Texas in a football game last Saturday. The woman coming toward them in the dark had a tire blow. She overcorrected the tire. The car began to spin and then it eventually flipped up in the air, ended up landing on the driver's side of my friend's son's car, killing his son instantly. His wife and child and unborn child were hurt, but they're going to make it. But my friend Garen lost his son immediately in that tragic accident. Fast forward to three days ago, and my best friend in the entire world lives in Illinois, just started his first ministry at 52. It's been a struggle, been a struggle. Those, those things that Joe talks about with churches, he's got one of them. And so it's been a struggle. His, his oldest daughter, who went to school with our oldest son, Japheth, graduated with him. Just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful family. She's pregnant with her third child. They have a four-year-old daughter. Uh, she lost a baby um, a year and a half ago who was four months along and uh, really had a hard time dealing with it. Fast forward, she's pregnant again, uh, eight months this time, and began to feel strange last week. Went to the hospital and found out that the baby had died in her womb. She was admitted to the hospital yesterday and was induced. And today at 132 gave birth to her, her son, um, Jameson. And um, on top of it, she tested positive for COVID when she entered the hospital, which met my friend, Jason, and his wife, were not able to go to the hospital and meet their grandson and be there for their daughter that was suffering through this. And on top of that, he brought his mom and my friend's dad is suffering from debil debilitating Parkinson's disease. He did not make the trip. And so now they have to quarantine because they live in Illinois for two weeks. And so she can't go home to take care of her husband 
And so now he is alone for 14 days without his family. Now, I don't say all of that because I mean to be morbid. That's just what's going on in my life right now. But here's what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said in John 16. He said, in this world, you'll have, come on, finish it. You'll have trouble. Is there anybody in here, anybody watching online that doesn't know that that's not true? In this world, you'll have trouble. But that's not the verse. He says, <laughs> in this world, you'll have trouble. But be of good. Come on, man. Be of good cheer, cord. For I have overcome this mess. Amen. Right? So, so here's the question for all of us. Do you believe those promises? And here's the thing. Saying it isn't enough. Actions validate whether we believe those promises. Because listen, we can set in here, you can join online at Starbucks, your car, your living room, kitchen, bedroom, whatever. And we can say in the safest spaces, I believe. And listen, we need those moments, don't we church? Right? We need the moments of worship where we can just feel safe and know that we can say those things. But outside of these spaces, those lives that you lead, that life that I lead, is faced with trouble. And our Savior says, be of good cheer. Because I've overcome this world. He tells us what he does. And he tells us how to act in the face of that promise. So I have a choice. I've told you all this stuff. Do I walk around constantly bemoaning the struggle? Or do I live in the promise of God that he's overcome it? That there's more to this. And it's okay. Not only is it okay, it's it's ask of me to be of good cheer. Is that wrong? No. It's the way it's supposed to be. And yet the reality is, for so many of us, that's where the rubber doesn't meet the road in our faith. Because isn't that the crux of what we're doing here? The crux of what we're doing is accepting a promise that Jesus made on our behalf. He's made us promises. Don't worry. I've got you. Your life is more important than list of all of these things. So don't worry. And yet for so many of us, our, our inability to trust that promise derails our ability to live out our faith. And so the reality is, what does that promise do for us? And listen, you're not talking to a person that doesn't understand it. I do. I get it. I mean, if you want to, we can sit down and I can tell you some stories about my life that'll force you to think your life is a walk through the, the tulips. And you could do the same for me. And I get it. Humans have pain they need to express. Humans have fears that they need to deal with. But the constant, intentional choice to not believe in the promise has derailed so many of us because of the troubles this world brings us.
Listen, I can look across this room and just guess at the people who are watching online about what you're going through. And what I know is this, that in every space you go through, the question that God asks of you and me is this. Do you believe? Do you trust? Are you persuaded in my promise in spite of what you're going through? And I can tell you this, it's always evident in the people that say yes. And it's always evident in the people that say yes and mean no. It's not possible to hide it. And so for me, the last step of rebuilding anything, whether it's your life, your marriage, your your financial ability, your family, whatever it is, your own personal struggle, your own personal pain, your own personal hurt, whatever that thing is that severs you. And listen, the stories that you could tell us that severed you from truly embracing your belief in the promise could, could cause us to be here for hours in tears. Nobody's mitigating your pain, your betrayal, your hurt, your fear. That's not the point here. But we have something that we've been told that's better. And it can't just be held on during the safe space. We've got to learn to hold on to it during a storm. And for some of you, for some of us, listen, it's me too. We find ourselves in these storms and we end up feeling alone. And it's because we've chosen to let the world's troubles cause us to doubt the veracity of these promises. And I'll be honest with you. I did that for a long time. I did it after Bible college and my son died and, and my wife left me and the church fired me and I was homeless. And, and then two years later, my dad at 49 drops dead from an aneurysm and he doesn't know Jesus. And my mom's left with no money and no, no life and, and living in a home with no running water and no indoor plumbing. And it's 1990. I just sort of became angry felt justified and took a hiatus from buying it for seven years. And God slowly began to bring me back in. My, listen, my life was a disaster. It was, it was, it was, it was just disaster. And God slowly began, began to bring me back in. And when God finally called me again to open a door for ministry, I had to choose. I had to choose. Because I knew my life wasn't over from trouble. <laughs> At that point in time, I had more kids than I cared about. Right? And I'd been married at that point in time for enough years to know that we were going to struggle at times. And I just knew me personally enough to know this is probably going to cause some trouble. And I made a decision to believe God no matter what. And I was never going to doubt his promise. And it started with me forgiving, not me forgiving myself. We say that and that is so stupid, right? It, it started with me believing that God had forgiven me. And that there was no longer anything for me to forgive myself about. I mean, because listen, if you're sitting there thinking I got to forgive myself, you're going to lose that fight. Because you know what you did. And you're going to have a hard time forgiving yourself for that because the consequences of what 
you did and what I did can't be changed. So how do you forgive it? Here's how you forgive it. You trust that God's mercies are new every morning. That every single stinking morning, this page that God gives us to write on is completely blank and devoid of any incidents or memories of yesterday. And I decided I would never, ever, ever carry a mistake from one day to the next. It annoyed my wife because she couldn't understand it. I'm married to you. You're a moron. How can you let that go, right? My friends, you don't care about what you did wrong. No, that's not it at all. But why do I need to carry something that God refuses to carry for me? Why? Because I'm going to take God at his word. And if he tells me that my debt before him is completely paid once for all and for all time, I'm not doubting the veracity of that truth. I refuse to. Because if God said it, Jesus did it. Why in the world would I doubt it? And yet, let's be honest, how many of us doubt that? In here at times and in our safe spaces, we're like, whoo, but then mess up. Watch your marriage fail. Watch your kids turn against you. Watch your job be taken away. Watch them repossess your car and your home, right? Watch you have to start over again. Watch your moral failures completely destroy everything. And then ask yourself, do I still believe that? So that you can get up every morning and know every morning, God didn't even remember yesterday. What am I doing living in it? I refuse to. And when I got to Tomoka, I thought I had it whipped. And then God went, there's a lot more stuff you need to believe me about. And the last 11 years at Tomoka has taught me more and more, as it does every day, that the greatest gift I can give God in my faith isn't to go on a mission trip or to fill the offering bucket with money. And listen, don't get me wrong. Don't go back and tell Joe Court said we don't have to go on mission trips or give money. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the greatest gift that you can give anybody, anybody that makes a promise to you, is to believe it. Can I get an amen? If somebody makes you a promise, the greatest gift you can give them is to believe it. And how often should you believe it? Every single day. Listen, if God did what he said he did, and God says what he says about how he feels about us and how he provides for us and takes care of us, what do you think the greatest act of faith we'll ever do is? It's not build an $11 million building. It's not raising $3,000 to go on a two-week trip to Uganda. It's not sponsoring 57 children in a country that most of us will never go to. The greatest gift you can give a promise maker is to trust the promise. And I believe that's what Nehemiah did. He trusted God's promise to bring his people back. And here's some evidence. It was evident in the way he prayed. Listen, how many things has God told you about praying and me? And yet we pray, as I said last week, for the silliest, simplest things. God, please be with me. He's always with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. 
Why ask God for something he's already going to do for you? Instead, let's pray, right? Let's pray for Stacy. Let's pray that her COVID test is negative so she can fly. Let's pray that the people who are deaf learn to read God's word and in the reading of God's word, develop faith and accept Jesus in Tanzania and Malawi. Let's pray that the 57 kids that you sponsored this weekend to launch a care point, find Jesus in those spaces. Let's pray based on our belief in a promise. Let's not pray. God, thank you for the meal. Please be with me. Let's, let's expand our prayers to convince God that we believe in his promise. And listen, I said this last week. You've, there's a part of prayer that has to be grateful. God, I'm grateful. I have no idea what I'm going to eat later tonight, but I'm going to be grateful for it. Right? I, I'm going to be grateful for a home that I can go to bed in at night. I, I'm going to be grateful for a family that checks out at 11 so I can have some alone time, right? I'm going to be grateful, right, for a 24-hour McDonald's at about 2 in the morning when I get to go through there and get my coffee. I'm going to be grateful. But listen, our prayers got to reflect that we believe in a God who says, listen, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, get up, and it'll go into the sea. You have to have that kind of evidence of your belief in the promise. You have to have, you have, to have the kind of evidence... That shows in your response to fear. Listen, COVID-19, racial inequality and racial injustice, the Democrats and the Republicans and the election and Trump and Biden and Harris and Pence and all the nonsense that surrounds that and Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and All Lives Matter and you can't say this on your social media or you get banned or you can't. Here's what I know. That in spite of that big stuff, you're wondering whether your spouse is going to stay married to you. You're wondering if you're ever going to get over losing your child. You wonder, are you ever going to get, are you ever going to be able to put your feet back on solid ground after your marriage fell apart or after you lost your job or after, after COVID took your job and you can't pay your bills and apparently the government can't get on the same page to give us a stimulus check, right? Our lives are overwhelmed with fear. And here's what I know. If you believe in God's promise, the evidence of your response to fear will show it. Because as Zach Williams sings in his song, fear is a liar. Fear is a liar. And 1 John 4.18 says, perfect or complete love, known love, cast out all fear. Being a person who, who trusts in God isn't the absence of fear. It's, it's your response to it. Listen, if you think you're living in the world and you don't have any fear, I, I doubt whether you're paying attention. There's a lot to be afraid of. And the reality is, it's either the fear that gets the evidence that you believe in it, or it's your faith in the promises of God that get the evidences. So which is it? And I can tell you, I can tell by so many of your posts on social media that I don't read, but people tell me about then it's your fear that's driving all of that. It's not your trust. Because if it was your trust, you would tell God's story instead of screaming at their story. And here's why I know that. Because the third thing that I think is evident when people, when people believe in a promise is their response to the mission. This is Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18. And here's what Nehemiah said. He said to them, he, this is the people who are going to work with him. You see the trouble we're in. 
Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God. Listen to what he tells them. I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let's start rebuilding. And they began the good work. Here's what I know. If you believe in the promise of God, you'll stay focused on the mission. Here's my favorite thing about Joe. It's not that he likes the Cardinals because that's my least favorite thing about him. Here's my favorite thing about Joe is that I have no doubt, none in that man's ability to trust what God tells him. And so our God tells him that if you sow generously, you will reap. That is a promise ordained by the breath of the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul, and Joe believes it. And you want to know why I believe it? Because every time I turn around, he walks into my office and said, Hey, I committed this church to $50,000 to do this great work. I committed $10,000 yesterday to do this great work. Hey, I committed $150,000 to do this great work. And every time he says it, all I hear is that man always believes that that word is true. And you know what God has done over 27 years of ministry here at Tomoka? He has proven to be faithful to that promise. Yep. Every time. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have sympathy for a finance director who freaks out, right? But I'm grateful for a team of elders that have seen enough evidence to believe that too. Listen, if you believe in the promises of God, you'll stay focused on the mission. Here's what Nehemiah told him. We got enemies all around. We got reasons to be afraid. We got all this. No, that's not what he said. He just said, listen, let me tell you about the gracious hand of God on this endeavor and let's get to work. I know whether we believe in the promise of God by how much time we focus on the story of God in the mission and how much time we focus on other things. And I I'm always looking for the evidence of the God story in the mission because then I know that somebody believes in the promise of God. It's the number one thing I look for when people interview for jobs at our church. I don't care if you're looking for a job. That's not my job. This isn't making widgets. This isn't selling iced coffee. This is doing the work of God. So here's what I want to know in my interview with you. Do you trust in God's promise? Because if you don't, you're going to be a person who communicates poorly to our staff and you're going to focus on the enemy. You're going to focus on fear and you're not going to tell the gracious hand of my God story. And you know what's going to happen? We're going to fail to get the work done. It's the same in our lives. Is there evidence in your life that you believe God's promise? Ask yourself this. How much time do you spend focused on, on the God story in your life, in your kids' lives, in your church life? And how much time do you spend talking about fear and the enemy and all that stuff? You can tell. And the, I, I love the fact that our lead pastor is fearless in the face of all of that stuff. Not because he's a moron. He's the smart, honest to God, he's the smartest person I've ever met academically. I am annoyed when he talks. Because I realize how dumb I am at times, right? 
I mean, we were driving to the airport the other morning, going to take the team to Egypt. And some woman's talking about going to Peru and, and um, Miko Picho or whatever. And the next thing I, Macho Picho, right? And what is it? There you go, that word, right? And the next thing I know, he's like, hey, did you go to this place and that place and this market and that market? And I looked at him and I went, would you just please quit talking? Like, I'm trying to figure out how to drive and look through the rearview mirror at the same time, right? But I love the fact that, that Joe is not oblivious to the fear and the enemies. He's just so trusted in God's promise that it seems like he is. But he's not. That's the kind of evidence God looks for in our lives. And then, and then another evidence of our belief in a promise is in our response to our critics. Listen to what Nehemiah said. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and they ridiculed us. What is this you're doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And I answered them by saying, listen to this. I'm going to tell you God's story first. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you've got no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. And that, my friend, is all he said to his enemies. That's it. Now go look at some of your posts on Facebook. And read some of your responses on Instagram and Twitter. And ask yourself, do my responses to my perceived enemies sound the same? Or are they much more hateful and full of vitriol and criticism? And how much time do we give our enemies? Nehemiah gave his enemies two sentences. Two. And that was after he told them, this is God's work and we're going to do it. And he moved on. How many of us are still fighting a perceived enemy? Right? An ex. An ex-employee, an ex-friend. A neighbor, a co-worker. Somebody in the church. A pastor who hurt me. How many of us are focused on, on facing and fighting the, we, we've got to stand for truth. We've got to, we've got, no. You've got more important things to do, which is the mission that God intended for the church to do. God's truth is not going to be tore down by those who don't believe it. You don't have to fight with those who don't believe it. You have to serve the God story. You've got to serve the work. And if God's called you to lead mops, you lead mops. And if God's called you to go on a mission trip, you go on a mission trip. And if God's called you to do this, you do this. And are you going to have critics? Yes. And they're going to go, what are you doing? It's the dumbest thing. Does Pastor Joe know about this? Right? You're going to have that. And you know what you do? You tell them God's story and you move on. You don't get embroiled in a battle on social media where your footprint about your belief in God's promises is evident for all time. You just don't. That's why I don't argue with my kids. It's why I don't argue with people like, oh, do you know what's going on here? You know, you know, because, you know, my job at, at, at the church is being the bad guy. I'm the bearer of bad news. Hey, there's a problem. Of course, you got to solve it, right? Here, here's what I know. I'm the executive pastor at Tomoka Christian Church. I've got 
I've got an unspoken authority over certain things. So when people come to me like, oh my gosh, the house is burning down. Did you hear what's happening? You, you know, I, I don't ever respond in panic because you know what? It's either in my purview or it's not. And if it's not within my purview, I ain't gonna worry about it because I can't change it and I didn't start it. But if it is, why would I be, why would I be freaking out about it? All I got to do is decide to stop it or participate in it. It's the same way for us when it comes to our belief about God and the critics that we face. And listen, that goes for the critics that you find in your homes. That goes for your marriage relationships, your relationships with your children, your relationships with whoever you share a space with. Are there going to be critics in those spaces? Yeah. And how much time do we spend just getting sidetracked and sidetracked and fighting and arguing? And, you know, we, all it does is it reminds me that we're just not buying into the promise, right? Because what's the promise? Well, I can tell you what the promise is. Ephesians 6 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. (laughs) They're not our enemy. So that person you're mad at, that person you're arguing with, they're not the enemy. And here's what I know. If I believe that promise, I won't fight with people. Paul said, I no longer see people according to the flesh. Why? Because the only thing that matters is a spiritual remedy. So why focus on it? Is it annoying to deal with people in the flesh? Gosh, just get in a car with me and watch me struggle with it, right? I mean, it's a hard thing. That's not enough justification to ignore the promise of God. And here's the last evidence. In our fifth evidence is in Nehemiah's charge to his friends, his allies, his co-workers. Listen to what he said. So he's been inundated with all these reports of Chicken Little. Sky's falling, right? Chicken Little and Henny Penny showed up and said, oh, the sky's falling, right? Told him three times. Here's, here's was Nehemiah, here was Nehemiah's response. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. I posted them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. So here's his speech to his co-workers. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, who's great and awesome. A fight and fight for your families and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Listen. Right? It seems like every Wednesday night it rains, right? We, we, listen, we can get sideways with people who we want to share this fight with, who get discouraged, who get sidetracked, who are too afraid. And man, we just want to be critical of them, right? Point our fingers. What's wrong with you? Why can't you just get over this? Why are you letting this work? And then we send them scripture after scripture after scripture, right? Because we know it's right, right? Nehemiah's response to his friends, his co-workers was this this, simple. Listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he told them God's story. He's great and awesome. And then he moved on. But you know what he did before all of that? He put guards at the wall. Why? 
because that's exactly what those people needed in their weak moment. They needed some reinforcement. They didn't need somebody tearing them down. They didn't need somebody pointing their finger at them. They didn't need somebody judging them. What they needed was somebody at the wall with a weapon so they could go ahead and in spite of their fear, work. Sometimes that's what the people around you need. They don't need a scripture. They need a guard with a weapon. And yes, the scriptures are right and they're true and they're perfect. They're just not always the right time and space. And listen, I don't know if you've ever given anybody good advice, but there's not many things that are more difficult than giving somebody, wasting some, wasting great advice on somebody who isn't ready to hear it. Pretty much the life of being a parent, right? I mean, how many pearls of wisdom do we give our kids over the years that are just wasted? And we wish, man, I wish I could keep that one to myself and use it when a better moment, right? Nehemiah was smart enough to understand that even though he didn't give in to all the fear, he knew the people standing on the wall were completely exposed. And here's what he did. He put a guard there, right down on the ground. And he didn't look at them and go, fine, fine. Because you guys don't trust God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to waste manpower and put these people down here just to protect you. He didn't do any of that. He just put them down there. And then he told those people, don't be afraid. God's great and awesome. And they went to building the wall. There are people in your life right now that you know what they need less of? Is your index finger. They need less of it pointing at them. They need less of it typing text and sharing scriptures. I mean, my wife texted me today. After we talked about what was going on with our friends in Illinois. And she said, this world sucks. And I typed... In the box. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John sixteen thirty three, And I laid it on my lap. And I heard the Holy Spirit say. Are you a moron? <laughs> and I deleted that text. And I put a guard at a wall for her. Sometimes that's all you need. And here's what I know. Here's what I know. If you trust in the promise of God, it will impact how you treat the people that are your co-workers. It'll treat the fact that you'll treat them as people who are on your team. So they missed 100 shots in a row and they kept taking shots. They're still on your team. And if you want to be a great teammate, shut up and go rebound for them. Right? That's what we got to do. Listen, I, I truly believe that well, I truly believe what my wife said. This, this world sucks sometimes. Jesus said it a lot nicer. In this world, you'll have trouble. But I do believe that the promise of God is true. That in this world, we could still be of good cheer because he's overcome it. And more importantly, what I believe is this. That if you believe those things about your God in this book, your life will reflect that. It'll reflect evidences of that. And it won't just show up when we gather for church. And it won't just show up when we're doing something what we believe is great for God in our safest space. It'll happen when your marriage falls apart. It'll happen when you lose a child. It'll happen when you're facing the most difficult moments of your life. Listen, those moments are always going to be accompanied by human reaction and human emotion. Nobody's asking you to not be human and be a robot. But God is asking you 
to give more power to the promise than he does to those personal responses to all of those things. Because at the end of the day, that's all faith is. That's all it is. Is our ability to produce evidence that says, I believe that God is telling me the truth. Mike, did we get that video? No? All right. I'm going to show it to you next time. So my grandson, 20 months old, and he streams the Wednesday night service on my wife's iPad every Wednesday night. And so right before I got up here, she sent me a clip of him watching me introduce, right, the service and stuff. And he is just glued to that screen, right? Because he believes in the promise that his grandpa is great, right? Worthy. Ah, well, whatever. All right. Listen, rebuilding is a painful thing. I've had to do it more than once in my life. Some of you I know right now are doing it. You're going through it. You're muddling your way through it. Some of you haven't had to rebuild for a while and so you've forgotten, but it'll happen, right? And some of you are just helping somebody else rebuild, right? There's a lot of work in that process, but we serve a God who's great and awesome. We serve a God who's great and awesome and whose promises are amazing. I pray for all of us and all of you watching online, that what will happen in our lives over the next several days and weeks is we'll learn to produce the evidence that we truly believe in that promise. Because at the end of the day, that's how we learn to live at peace with God and find the joy and, joy and the fullness of life in Jesus. You won't ever find it by the activities of a Christian. You'll find it in the relationship of trusting in someone who made you a promise. Amen, church? All right, so we're going to take a break next Wednesday, pray for Treat Street, that, that thousands of people will come through here and we can be kind to them and love them and give them candy in a safe space. And more importantly, we can just let them know how much Jesus loves them. And then we'll come back. We're going to come back in November. We're going to start a new series uh, to finish out our final four weeks in this semester. And so I'm excited about that as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for Nehemiah. Uh, what, a, what a story. More importantly, what a lesson for us to learn. You, 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 you have based your entire premise for us on your promises. Every bit of why we're here and why we sing these songs and give this money and plant these churches is because we at some level believe your promise. My prayer is that we will become better at that. And then in those tight and difficult and scary and hard and painful places, man, we'll produce evidence of our true belief in those promises, God. And that when we're faithful in those little moments, you'll just keep entrusting us with bigger ones. So thank you for being faithful. Thank you for putting your reputation on the line to make all these promises. And thank you for being compassionate toward us as we learn how to trust in them more. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. God bless you, church.